Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Well, a lot to review from uh, the weekend that was. We all got back out there a little bit. It felt like many of us have been out there for a while, but huge crowds at Blue Jays. Raptors with a home game on Friday and playoffs to come. So we kind of talk a little bit about the movement towards normalcy. Feels like a little bit of a momentum kick uh, for the weekend. We'll see if you agree with that or not. Uh, Shiba Siddiqui and I talk about a movie that didn't age terribly well from 20 years ago. Some aspects of it have, but uh, some really funny moments, uh, which tells you how correct we are now uh, compared to two decades ago about that. Dr. Eric Cam on the show from X University as we talk about not just the expectation of the federal budget reaction from last week, but also kids registering for university next year and how that factors in and buying that first home in your 20s as well. We have a lot coming up. We hope you can stay with us. Thanks for finding the podcast. Toronto Today begins now. Um, let me start here uh, because I think it's really significant. I, I found a lot of the coverage in Shanghai, China, disturbing. And they always say in journalism or broadcasting, lead local, localize the lead. Okay, make it relatable for people in Toronto. And maybe there's people that um, have relatives in China. Maybe you uh, were born in China. Maybe you're watching this and you've been watching this now for 27 months and you have opinions about China and COVID. But they are still um, holding firm, whereas a lot of, well, Western democracies have clearly dropped the concept of eliminating COVID. Okay, a lot of us have. Um, many countries as well in the Far East have done exactly the same thing. Thailand waived practically all restrictions about three weeks ago. The Philippines did it right after New Year's. Like they're out. They recognize what is and what isn't possible. They recognize the human cost. They recognize some form of risk-benefit analysis. It's important to point out there's still a website that exists out there called zerocovidcanada.org. It, it doesn't give you one of those 404 errors. <laughs> okay. They still want you to get involved. We are looking for doctors, scientists, graphic designers, communication experts, and passionate people who can help share our message farther. That you're crazy. Because you can't end this pandemic. You can't crush COVID down to nothing. You can't make people stay at home for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks again. What, a fourth time, fifth time? Uh, and eliminate COVID-19. You get this, right? Well, I mean, most people uh, who are logical, whose brains haven't been broken, understand that this is true. You, It doesn't work. Do you think we've had flu around our entire lives? We've had a flu bug. Where's Where's Bill today? Well, he's got the flu. He's not coming in. Okay. Um, you think. That I mean, if you stayed home, if all of us stayed home, billions of people across the planet, we all just stayed home. Nobody brought us anything, by the way. McDonald's drive-thrus aren't allowed to be open. Okay, Amazon deliveries are going to stop. You got you like not, there's nobody's getting Amazon. Nobody's getting Uber Eats right now in uh, in Shanghai, China. Twenty six million people live there. Seven point nine billion people stay home. Just stay home for two weeks. Okay, well, who's going to provide fresh content on the television for us? Where's all the sporting events in front of empty stadiums that made us all gag to have to watch? Um, you think we'd eliminate flu? No, no one logical thinks that. But you think we'll eliminate COVID still after all this time? Okay, there was a Toronto Star article uh, I had to go back to, and I don't want to dig in on the reporter, um, so I won't even mention it. But this is, you won't believe the month this is from. I'm going to read you the headline and then read you the uh, some of the 
the aspects of it. How the COVID zero movement is butting heads with Canada's health officials. And it kind of references and interviews a few people. There's a few people that are out west. Um, and there's a few people that are uh, in Ontario. There's one person that's been really outspoken about it. A Montreal-based, uh, she's described as a doctor and dermatology professor. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you're a, you're an expert on skin. Fantastic. Let's 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 quote you for this story about COVID. Lisa Iannatoni or Iannatone uh, says she's noticed public health officials trying explicitly or implicitly to tamp down the message of the COVID zero crowd by suggesting everyone return to a more normal form of life. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, here's the quote. I want to give you the quote before I do this. And then I'm going to play you some critical audio about this. It's a little patronizing to tell people not to be worried about something they are justifiably worried about. Okay, you know, feel free to speak for 36 million Canadians and 340 million Americans and 7.9 billion people on the planet. You, you, You let us know how we're all feeling. It's true that all the restrictions have their own negative effects, she says that like it's like she had a bologna sandwich for lunch yesterday. But the reason we have restrictions is because we have a lot of virus. Think about that. Like, honestly, someone should paint that phrase on her wall, on her ceiling, and she should have to read it 20 times every time she goes to bed at night. The reason we have restrictions is because we have a lot of virus. Yes. And how's that going for everybody in terms of pushing the virus out of our lives after 26 months? How's that working out? One of the great lines that she uh, she gives is uh, is in a little bit. Uh, Iana Tony says they are the ones who are the realists who've been proven right time and again. As long as the COVID nineteen pandemic has been prolonged rather than squashed by various measures, distancing masks and now vaccines. I'd love to tell you that this story again. Here's the headline in the Star: How the COVID zero movement's butting heads with Canada's health officials. I'd love to tell you that this is from June of 2020. I'd even be almost understanding if this was from September of 2020. Oh, everybody's going back to school. We don't have vaccines yet. Hashtag unsafe September. Look out. Kids' heads will explode. Um, it's September 28, 2021. Okay. It's seven months ago. You couldn't get pregnant and have a child, a beautiful, bouncing baby boy or girl in the time from now to when this article was written. And I think this weekend demonstrated to me when we watch what's happening in Shanghai, China right now, that's COVID zero. That's an effort to eradicate the most transmissible virus imaginable. Okay. I'm surprised none of Ontario's COVID zero doctors. There are many on the Ontario science table who've never fully repudiated the concept. Um, I could give you names, but look up the Ontario science table and you'll figure out pretty quickly who they are. Why aren't they tweeting about China? Why aren't they disturbed? You know, there's images of pets being murdered. I'm going to tell you something that I, I, I can't even get the sentence out, but they have um, bagged up cats like in mesh bags from apartment buildings. What do you think is going to happen to those cats? They're going to be killed because of COVID zero. Why are these doctors horrified? We treat human beings that way. Why? Well, we started considering doing something like it to our own citizens last spring. Friday this coming is the anniversary of Black Friday. It's the worst I've felt during the pandemic. I don't know about you. Stay home. Save lives. No outdoor activity. Don't go anywhere. The Solicitor General of the province tells police officers, stop people in their cars. Ask them where they're going. Ask them why they're out. This was the time we all felt like we needed notes from employers to drive to jobs. 
My wife would go visit um, her father in a long-term care home, and she needed to get a message from the long-term care home that documented, yes, I have a relative in a long-term care home, so don't stop me in my car and ask me where I'm going and give me a $750 ticket. Not in China, in Ontario, yours to discover a year ago. Now, the cops decided they wouldn't do uh, Sylvia Jones's bidding, and it was a low moment for the province. One, I didn't know that they'd politically recover from, but thankfully for the provincial government, they have the opposition parties operating as they are, almost in COVID-zero-esque fashion. We had Dr. Suman Chakrabarty on the show last week. He documented and believes he sees these patients every day. He's not a dermatologist. He's not a um, he's not a librarian. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty documents that he thinks this wave is going to rise fast. It sure did. And it's going to sink fast. And we're already seeing some signs of that. Look at what's happened in Western Europe, uh, where you had multiple countries with their BA2 waves. And I've been using this term for a long time now, the whiplash curves, fast up, fast down. I expect that same thing to happen here as well. It's important to note that we didn't do anything to cause this. This is what respiratory viruses do. This is what COVID does. We have control over trying to minimize um, the severity. The, the biggest thing we have, of course, the vaccine, we have therapeutics as well. But I think the idea that this wave happens, something that we did, I think it's important for us to take that out uh, as that's a huge misconception. COVID zero was arrogant. It was not mathematical. It was not based on science. We've got a responsibility to get through COVID. Okay. We've all had friends insist they've got COVID, but aren't testing positive. We have friends testing positive right now and uh, moving right along. This we're going to have to say this to each other. We're going to have to be big boys and girls. This is life and you get sick sometimes. This is terrible. It's the crisis of our existence. But we also have to raise our hands sometimes and say, there's nothing I can do about this anymore when we have therapeutics, when we know how to risk mitigate, when 80 year olds should take more caution than 20 year olds, that one size fits all uh, health regulations didn't work in the first place about this. Dr. Anthony Fauci said this on ABC yesterday. I'm telling you, when Anthony Fauci is out on restrictions, it's over. I think it gets back to what we were discussing just a moment ago, John. It's going to be a person's decision about the individual risk they're going to take. Mm -hmm. I think the people who run functions, who run big dinners, who run functions like the White House mm -hmm. Correspondents Ball or thinking back the gridiron dinner are going to have to make a determination looking at the CDC guidelines and seeing where the trends are. I mean, there are some places you go, not only is it required that you show proof of vaccination, but you have to have a negative test the day you go to a particular place. Yep. And I know a lot of social functions throughout Washington and in New York are doing the same thing. And it's up to the individual to determine what their level of risk. We don't want to poo-poo getting infected. I think people sometimes say, well, it's okay to get infected. No, it's not, because there are things like long COVID. And there are sometimes people, even though they don't require hospitalization, John, they get significantly ill. They may be at home. They may require a doctor consultation, but they don't get hospitalized. That's not something to poo-poo. Again, sure. each individual will have to take their own determination of risk. Anthony Fauci is 71 years old. He's given his life to public health and medicine. He went to that dinner uh, at the uh, gridiron, and so did Joe Biden, who's 79 years old, who got his second booster shot last month. If you're eligible and you feel it, it, is, uh, it befits you, get that booster shot. 
Who's anti-vaccine? Well, not me. I've got three of them, and I'm really confident in them. They've given me swagger. They've given me confidence. They make me think I can take on the world. Um, If you've got three vaccine shots or you even have relatives that have four, you'll have to tell me why you don't believe in them as much as I do, because that's what they're there for. All these Ontario large firms, big businesses, private schools, seemingly friends of enterprise and friends of the province got rapid tests. And you and I didn't for our kids at at elementary school and many hotspots didn't and many essential workplaces didn't. And that's a problem. Those are the things I hammer, by the way, if I'm Stephen Del Duca and I'm Andrea Horvath. Those are the, the things I destroy and excoriate the province for. Among other things, you've got boxes, boxes of things that you can bring out and pull up instead of arguing about what we're going to do with face coverings over the next three weeks. That's me. I'm not in politics, but that's exactly what I would do going forward. I'm uh, very pleased to welcome on a Western University professor, my alma mater, so it's always uh, great, but it's a serious issue. And uh, quoted in this uh, particular story in the Toronto Star is Prachi Srivastava. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much for making the time for us. No problem. Thanks for having me on the show. Tell us a little bit about this. This this uh, when you find this out, it's something that maybe a lot of us suspected, Prachi. But uh, but I think it's really concerned to see it all laid out there at a time when we were desperate to know more. Many of us were still getting vaccinated and getting um, our vulnerable people vaccinated. The testing to get it to certain places and get it to hot spots where the fires were would have made a big difference. Absolutely, I think uh, the story in yesterday's uh, Toronto Star is the story in terms of thinking about uh, how resources were prioritized and where they were prioritized and being very clear that this is a government decision. Uh, The pandemic uh, management and the way that resources were distributed, these are all government decisions. Um, And I think it's important for people to understand that individual responsibility is there, but when it actually comes to the big questions around equity around which resources were prioritized and to whom, that really is very much in the control of the government. Um, And what we're seeing uh, in terms of uh, distribution of resources, in terms of the effect of that in lower income and racialized neighborhoods in particular, again, all of these are uh, are very much results of what was prioritized at the level of government. It gets described in the story as a free-for-all scramble, and that's that's just not what health is supposed to be. Now, have we raced before to, you know, little portals open up and, and certain age groups are able to, to get the vaccines and people are frustrated they can't get the appointment they want? That's probably inevitable. There's only so much we can do about that. We we meant to prioritize people properly, but this the, the, there were enough rapid tests out there, the volume thereof, that this wasn't like, say, 13, 14 months ago, where we had a limited amount of vaccines. We could have moved these rapid tests to places where we could have probably kept more things open, to be honest. Well, I mean, I think even going back to the idea around scarcity of, uh, well, even around prioritizing the vaccine, there have been studies that have come out that showed that actually, even in terms of the early distribution of the vaccine, that wasn't done in, in true priority in terms of really prioritizing the neighborhoods and the areas that needed them first. And yes, of course, the age groups. uh, But even then, in terms of swiftness, if we were to compare Quebec with Ontario, uh, the swiftness in terms of even getting it out Mm -hmm. to the uh, older age groups just wasn't there. Now, when you ask about the rapid test, yes, that's, I mean, that's a blatant, I mean, this is a blatant example of a resource that was there, that was available. 
it, which we had many of. And when it came down to the school's issue, because, you know, that's the area that I work on, mm-hmm. um, it, it was very clear that there were certain categories of schools that were eligible uh, ahead of others, and that was private schools. It's also important, I think, for people in Ontario to understand that, you know, 94% of students in Ontario, that's about roughly 2 million, actually attend public schools. So if we're talking about prioritizing the population, you prioritize where there, where there is the greatest need. So that would be in, you know, communities, uh, which we already know have been ad- more adversely affected. And then, of course, you want to pop- start with the popula- population that has the greatest in number. So that would, all, again, if we're talking about schools, would be public schools. And that's not what was happening, even in a case where the resources were available and ready. And we knew that that was going to be something that would be very important in terms of uh, continuity. Yeah, I think I, I think you hit on something there that, yeah, in context, um, I agree with you. Last spring, I, I was looking at what a lot of the even the U.S. states were doing or what the U.K. was doing. The U.K. had had vaccines prior to us. The U.S. obviously opened up uh, prior to us with the mRNA vaccines. And Prachi, they they prioritized um, not just healthcare workers, but they prioritized people in essential workplaces. They prioritized educators. They prioritized cops and EMTs. And I, and I think we just went, we just ticked down via age. So then when we say, well, why can't we keep schools open in May and June? Well, we didn't push educators to the front of the line in March. And I would say as well, there should have been more yelling from the boards and unions about it. And, and in, you know, if not mandating, it's strongly suggesting that, that that be done in March. And that's why we left ourselves kind of naked in, in May and June. And we said, well, we can't reopen schools. We don't have enough vaccinated teachers. I mean, I'll have to intervene here. Um, it isn't the case that there that there weren't uh, you know when you say we the the, the pronoun there um, it's the, the government makes that decision right. and it isn't actually the case that people were not making noise about that uh, there were a number of us I, mean, I was one of them that was making noise all the way from March 2020 about hey what are we doing about schools um, and when it came to education workers and when it came to unions uh, there was a lot of discussion around, you know, keeping schools safe and what do we do about protecting education workers. So it isn't the case that that wasn't being uh, made clear. Um, there were some of us who were presenting evidence right from the beginning to say, look, here, there are countries that are prioritizing education and education workers in schools and, and, and Canada and particularly in Ontario is definitely not one of them. So that, you know, I think in terms of making noise and really being quite active, that, that was happening. But ultimately, and I mean, even the science table came out and said a number of times and even put it into, yeah. the, into the science brief. But as ultimately, regardless of what the, the public, you know, discourse was, the decision on how resources are distributed and what the policies are in terms of what is kept open and what is kept closed and, and which mandates apply to where, that is ultimately lies in the hands of the government. And so d- despite evidence, despite discourse actually moving, so at the beginning, even public discourse, d- discourse around schools was very laissez-faire, and, and there were a few of us that was making noise, but yes. it wasn't really, that moved. You, you, I, I, that I, moved. I, I, and I, even when the evidence was there, the government didn't actually make that decision. 
I know. I think two things about what you said. One, you're bang on that that the government didn't make that a priority. It's it's them and only them that can do it. And many teachers wanted uh, to get bumped up and and to be able to get vaccinated at least with that first shot, so they could finish the school year. We were getting to better weather. We can ventilate the classrooms better. We can be outside more. All those things. When I would talk to to you know union leaders in the summer, I interviewed these people. I interviewed the Harvey Bischoffs. I interviewed um, you know the Liz Stewarts, and they were like, "Well, I you know can we make sh- you know it's a personal health decision. We can't really ask teachers to get vaccinated." And then that conversation turned by late August, and we're like, "No, parents aren't going to feel safe in the classroom with an unvaccinated teacher." I mean, that was what parents were saying by the end of August, and we were scrambling before September to get teachers properly vaccinated because some of them chose not to. Most teachers, uh, actually, the data show most teachers were vaccinated and have been vaccinated and were amongst the first to get vaccinated when they were eligible. And I think it's very, very, I think it's dangerous discourse to personalize. And I'm saying this across the board. It's it's dangerous discourse to have uh, conversations that really personalize people for decisions that that are out of their control. Absolutely. Absolutely. so I think that's very important. And it's also important to look at the data. And the data are quite clear that, you know, the large majority, the vast majority of the vast majority of Ontario's, uh, Ontario's population has been vaccinated. The vast majority of teachers and education workers have been vaccinated and were vaccinated as soon as they were eligible. So I think that is very important. And I think when we're talking about, you know, looking at what happened with education in Ontario, you know, having the longest closure in Canada, um, it's up to now 28 weeks if we go all the way back from March 2020 until January of 22. Um, that's by far the largest across the country. I mean, we're talking um, double to 2.5 times compared to Quebec and every other province is, is, is better than that in terms of school closures. We're, we're much higher than the European and North American yeah. average, regional average. This is, I mean, when you look at all of that, this is very much, uh, we are an outlier in all the wrong ways. Yeah. Ontario is an outlier in all the wrong ways. And the reason it's an outlier isn't because the people of Ontario are not, you know, uh, wanting for the virus to be controlled. The reason we're an outlier is because this is a government decision. Yeah, yeah. And getting the, te- and getting, again, getting the test to schools in, in, at a proper juncture and, and at least, at least at a equal yeah. level to the other places, keep schools open longer. It doesn't, it doesn't close them up in December or January. The fact that public schools first got rapid tests in, it, when there's a week left in, before the Christmas break is rather outrageous. Absolutely I, it was. I mean, right. Look, here, you know, I think the other part of that story is that when it became known in the public and, um, you know, amongst people that were watching, like myself and others, when that became known, that became known quite early on, like probably in August, it became known to us that uh, there were certain kinds of schools and corporations, businesses that were eligible and that public schools were not. When that became known, we started, you know, talking about it. People did start making noise and there was, you know, this, um, concerted effort to say, hey, we should expand access. There was no discussion that private schools should, you know, they should be revoked. That's not what people were saying. What people were saying was it should be expanded so that actually the, yeah. population, the school population that needs it the most, both in number and priority, should yeah. get it. Instead yeah. of doing that, what, was ha- what happened was that actually access to the rapid test for all schools was revoked. I know. I mean, all, all, all people, all people... All, I- all schools, I know. You know, 
I, in private school. So and so that is even even more egregious. That's even more egregious. I want to have a longer conversation about this, but I'm right out of time. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed our chat today. No problem. I'm happy to come back if you'd like to talk more. Let's do it again. Prachi Srivastava, a Western University professor, she's quoted in this story. You're watching Russia, Ukraine. I don't think we had quite the visceral feelings like I didn't feel like I did last week um, watching it during the weekend and feeling I've got to get reengaged here. And I think a lot of my peers, you talk to people on the phone, you'd be like, are you watching this? Are you seeing this? And you'd be really reengaged in something that has always fascinated me. It's um, it, Vladimir Zelensky was on 60 Minutes uh, last night. And uh, did an interview. There's uh, there's obviously a uh, an interpreter helping. But Scott Pelley asked President Zelensky about concessions, about being willing as well, even to let Russia keep Crimea. Here's some of that chat. Overall, we're not ready to give away our country. I think we've already given up a lot of lives. So we need to stand firm for as long as we can. But this is life. Different things happen. It's negotiable. Well, this issue would definitely be raised in the course of negotiations. We understand the Russian side. We understand one of their provisions that is always talked about is to recognize Crimea as Russian territory. I will definitely not recognize that. And they would really like to take the southern parts of our country. I clearly understand that questions like this will be raised in negotiations, if there ever are any. But we were not ready to give up our territory from the beginning. Had we been willing to give up our territory, there would have been no war. So that's from 60 Minutes last night. So I took, uh, uh, you know, you got to take courses to get through university, right? And I'm like, okay, let's take a couple World War tactical courses. I was a poli-sci major, but I took a few history courses, you know, just to, just for something light in the middle of the day. But I remember a lot of the talk about tactics. So I'm not a zero. I'm not a 10 out of 10 for being up on that, but I'm not a zero either. And I found this passage on unheard.com interesting. And the, and, the, and the op-ed is called Why Putin's Invasion Failed. But this doesn't bode well for Ukraine when I read this. Now that the Ukrainians have gone on the offensive, they've lost their key advantage of remaining undercover while firing at exposed advancing enemies. And I would say that was a huge success for them in the first three and a half weeks. Russians didn't know where they were. The urban warfare is going to benefit, quote unquote, the home team all the time. Let me go back to what was written here. They need armored vehicles to avoid being held up by Russian fire. But so far, they've received only a handful from the Czechs and Germans. What happens next in this war will very largely depend on the quantity and quality of the armored vehicles friendly countries are willing to hand over to the Ukrainians. There's no shortage of them in Europe where shrunken armies have placed thousands of armored vehicles in storage. They could use those right now. And that makes perfect sense to me. So on foot, on the street, there's no there's no way to win. There's no way to win and there's nowhere to hide because the Russians have figured out that was the Ukrainian tactic in the first month or so. Marcus Kolga, our friend and, of course, from disinfowatch.org, joins us now. When I say that, again, I, I'm no expert when it comes to tactics. But, uh, yeah, urban warfare is really tough for the invader as opposed to the invadee or Early on, but eventually, you know, there's just too much firepower. You catch on to the hiding spots. You figure out where people are. And obviously, Marcus, what they've done in slaughtering citizens, um, there's been a bit of psychological and raping them. There's been a bit of a psychological warfare game played as well by the Russians here. Yeah. So first of all, that that part of that tactical uh, part of this war, the the targeting of civilian targets and 
um, and uh, spreading terror amongst civilian populations. That's uh, that's only going to intensify now. Mm. Uh, Vladimir Putin over the weekend uh, appointed a, a new general, Dvornikov, uh, to, to run the war in Ukraine for him. Um, this is a general who specialized in um, what's called uh, depopulizing uh, urban centers in Syria during the Syrian war. Um, that means, of course, he specializes in mass murder and genocide, essentially. Um, he's been appointed to run the war. So I think that, again, we, we can we'll only see an intensification of, uh, of the terror that we've already been witnessing. As far as uh, Ukrainian tactics are concerned, yeah, it's, uh, it's go- there's, there's, a, there's going to be a major shift here. Um, Russia is essentially resetting the war. They are, what, they were, what they've been doing over the past six, seven weeks has clearly failed. Um, Ukraine has successfully defended uh, most of the country, including Kiev. Um, so they're going to now shift everything, uh, all of their efforts to the south and to the east. And what we're going to see is a more traditional form of warfare where we have, you know, uh, well-defined front lines um, and, uh, and Russia pushing along those defined front lines. It's going to make, make defending the country uh, quite a bit more difficult. And you're absolutely right. What Ukraine has needed and continues to need is, uh, is uh, lethal defensive weapons. And that includes armor. It includes uh, surface-to-air missiles. It includes still more t- anti-tank missiles and also uh, surface-to-sea missiles. Let's not forget that uh, the, the Russian Navy has filled up the, essentially the Black Sea with its, uh, with its warships. Um, it is threatening to uh, destroy infrastructure in Odessa. So Canada actually can contribute with its harpoon missile um, to uh, to defend uh, yeah. to defend uh, coastal areas from from Russian Russian attack, but more is needed definitely to help uh, Ukraine defend itself against this, this this shifting tactic. Now, I want to try another couple other sentences from uh, an op-ed in the Guardian yesterday. One of the, from Ian uh, Ian uh, Sampson. One of the great tragedies of this conflict is it seems Zelensky never thought Putin would invade, and Putin never thought Zelensky would fight. Both probably expected a settlement of some kind, but once the fighting broke out, Ukrainian forces may have actually been too successful. Just like the bloody first few months of the First World War, the casualties the Russians have taken are too high for them to seek a political settlement now. And that's where I feel. I keep thinking negotiation. I hear T. Marcus people talk about the negotiating table, the negotiating table. Ukraine can't do it because they've had too much. It's been too bloody. It's been too brutal. And and you can't just let Putin waltz back to Russia and say, well, we did our best. Like they both need something out of this now that may not come from the table. And it's frightening. Yeah, it is. It's truly frightening. What Putin right now needs is a is a clear victory. Um, that victory includes uh, holding on to Donbass. And we were talking about this already in the fall. Yeah. You know what Putin's objectives were. And, they, you know, I think most of us, those who watch uh, Russia, we believe that it was basically Donbass, that he wouldn't go much further because doing anything beyond that was completely unstrategic and, and frankly, unhinged. That's what's happened. Um, and I think the results uh, speak for themselves, the disaster that that has ensued. Um, and so, you know, I think he needs to, he's pulling back now, he's resetting the war, he needs to take Donbass, he needs to take that southern corridor to make sure that Russia has a land corridor between Russia and Crimea. Those are going to be the two objectives. Without those, um, you know, he's going to keep keep fighting until he, secure those, he secures those two objectives. There's no doubt about that. Um, he does need to show the Russian people that there is a result because, we, you know, we even hear now that the the Russian government, Dmitry Peskov, the, the spokesman uh, for for the Russian government, just uh, on Friday admitted to the fact that uh, that that Russia has suffered serious uh, uh, casualties in this war. So if if the if the government is admitting that, then things are not going well. So yeah, he's going to need that victory to uh, 
to demonstrate uh, to the to the Russian people why he engaged in this war at all. Marcus Kolga, kind of to join us in Toronto today from disinfowatch.org. Uh, um, anytime, I wouldn't even say it's just strongman regimes. I I would say in in most cases, um, the the message often gets gets filtered back to the world leader. We've talked about this and documented this with Putin, but I'd make the case, look, America thinks mission accomplished. We've won the Iraq war. Not so fast. Hitler thought he was winning World War II. It's documented in in many occasions. They were afraid to tell him that he wasn't. Is Putin's move, which you reference of of, of this uh, general um, that is just vicious and brutal, is this a sign that it's obvious to Putin that that word's gotten through to him? This has gone terribly for it. This has gone the, the absolute opposite of what Russia expected would happen. A, the Ukrainians would fight. B, the Ukrainians would win. Is he finally getting the message on that? Well, look, I, I, I'd be surprised if he wasn't getting the message right right off the beginning. I mean, this is this is a guy that rules his country with an iron fist. Uh, I think that his generals are are terrified of lying to him. Uh, you know, I think the picture was quite clear from the beginning that Ukraine would resist. I think initially that he got his intelligence uh, wrong. Um, he had a completely different understanding of what uh, was uh, how the Ukrainian people would be motivated to to push back. I think he was completely unprepared. Uh, for for the West 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 the West United uh, stance against the invasion, mm-hmm. um, all of these things caused him to miscalculate, um, and and I think that's the real problem now. So he's, uh, you know, he's already been uh, engaging in mass war crimes. There are a lot of world leaders who are uh, who are saying that what he's doing in Ukraine is a genocide. Um, so he's doubling down on this. He's doubling mm-hmm. down on the terror with this uh, appointment of this new general. Uh, and I think that's going to be one of the primary new tactics moving forward. He has nothing to lose right now, as you said before. Marcus Kolga, thanks so much for keeping us updated uh, on this show. Uh, and I know you're on other shows on the radio station, too. Uh, thank you very much uh, for, for always being there for us and keeping our audience informed. Anytime, Greg. Thanks for having me on. I want to bring on uh, Professor Eric Kam from uh, X University, uh, who joins me now, who's probably combing Billy Ocean set list to figure out. You don't have to do this. It's I know you like to think of yourself as a researcher, but we, okay, we first can move of all, right along first, if you want. Okay, first of all, I liked him. I thought he was great in high school. And then when my you two went to high school with him? friends, no, my two close, he's way older than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my two closest friends got married. Their wedding song was Suddenly. So, of course, that song now has a privileged place in our list. But you have to have the stuff from Jewel of the Nile. You have to have the stuff from Romancing the Stone, especially that video where he's digging and the going gets tough. That was a good song. Yeah, that's Jewel of the Nile. Eddie Grant did Romancing the Stone. This is a different guy. But oh, I yeah. Know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. They, he didn't do them for both both the uh, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner movies. But let's move on. <laughs> the audience agrees. Um, federal budget. What did you like? What surprised you? You know, we were talking about um, we were talking a lot about homes last week and, and our reaction to it Friday morning was very much for homeowners. But as um, we documented on the show, I think I we did Chatterbox with Jason Chapman and Mike Stubbs, my friend, my former roommate from London, Ontario. And we said, who saves eight thousand dollars a year in their 20s or even in their early 30s? These are big asks uh, for people that. It's tough to save money when you're coming out of school and you got you got loans and you want to buy a car. Even it that's that's I'm not sure that changes things for the bottom line for home ownership. What did you think of it? I thought nothing in that budget changed anything for anybody, and I was really skeptical of it. The only thing that you could say is good about it, but it's not really, is that the spending wasn't in the three digits of billions; it was only in the two digits of billions. But there's nothing in there to really help owner, home ownership, and I'll tell you why. First of all. 
They're talking about spending $2 billion building new homes. Where are they going to build them? At Young and Bluer? No, they're going to build them in the proverbial Yechepitzville. So if you're willing to move your, move your family three hours north, south, or east, then maybe you have a chance at securing one of those homes. But is it going to help the, the, the GTA? Is it going to help Montreal? Is it going to help Vancouver or those urban centers? Not at all. Not when immigration is so strong. We've said 80% of Canadians coming to our country, 80% of immigrants coming to our country, come to the 416905. What is that going to do? It's going to do nothing. And then they throw you a bone and say, well, let's let the first $40,000 of it be collected in a bank account with no interest. Well, first of all, we have that. It's called TFSA. Yeah. You can pull your money out of that, only there's a strict deadline where you have to pay it back. So they could have done the exact same thing by just either weakening or eliminating the need to pay back your TFSA on your first home. But also $40,000 in Toronto, where houses average over a million dollars, it was a real, what I call low hanging fruit budget. Let's spend on the military. Let's mm. spend on indigenous issues, both important. I understand the need for both. But when that budget, when you look at it and you take it apart piece by piece, ask yourself, is there anything there that isn't just making the public sector bigger? And I'll tell you, Greg, I can't find it. So I give it a failing grade. I think that about um, home ownership and, and immigration. If I were to emigrate to the UK, uh, if I were to go there, I would know not that that I shouldn't get an apartment in like central London. I would know to live on the outskirts. And I would tell you like east of Toronto, where I am in Ajax, they're building like mad. Like that's more sensible. But you're right to come in and work either a minimum wage job or, you know, you're waiting tables, you're working retail at the Eaton Center. Yeah. Living um, living on up, up and down Bay Street or Young Street or at Young and Eglinton or in Yorkville makes no sense. But I but I still feel like people do it. And I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why they they think they'll get ahead by planting themselves in the middle of the city. Like, I, why don't they know better? Well, because, you know, at one time you were young. I mean, it was decades ago, but you Thank remember you. when you wanted to be in a hip part of town, living at probably young and eligible and this and that. The problem is, is that Toronto's gentrified and now it's gentrifying in a way that makes us look like Los Angeles and Chicago and New York. And you hate to say it because I don't want to put a damper on young people's dreams. They should always dream about wanting to live in the city. But like those American cities, this inner city, the core of the city is for the super wealthy. And you start your homeowning career away, whether it's an hour away, 45 minutes away. I don't know. Everybody has a different bank of mom and dad and a different initial endowment in terms of wealth. But the reality is when it comes to living in a big major urban center, you're probably going to start your life away from it and then creep as close as you can. The days, unless you are the super wealthy, the days of your first home being at, you know, Young and St. Clair, they're over and they've been over for a long time. And let me tell you that raising interest rates and giving away $40,000 is going to do absolutely nothing. And by the way, this other baloney about we're going to stop foreign ownership is going to do absolutely nothing because there's something called a black market. Of course, you've never heard of it, but people do things illegally. And so you can guarantee that people who want to buy houses in this country will find people who live in this country to do that mm. transaction for them and maybe even pay them a premium. So it's, it's just not going to happen. Toronto is a city for the super wealthy now. People that own homes are going to live on the periphery and hope before their lives are over that they can move inward. Do you think uh, the new generation is more conscious of that w when it comes to picking a university to go to? You're, you're in that 
age right now uh, where your daughter's going to go to co- go to college soon. I My conscious memory of the mid-90s is getting into Ryerson, getting into Fanshawe, and deciding Fanshawe might be better because it was just broadcast journalism. It wasn't broadcast journalism in print. But I was conscious that my parents were middle class, and I'm like, it's just going to cost less. The idea of living downtown intimidated me from a cost perspective. So I'd ask if you think kids and parents are thinking about this a ton more when it comes to, you know, it's going to be cheaper for your kid to go to Western or Guelph or Windsor than it is to go to Ryerson, York or uh, or UBC of all places. Yeah, first of all, I want to apologize for that Ryerson thing that we had standards. Um, I think that it's really two different questions. The first question was, are parents going to think about it? Of course, parents are going to think about it and they're going to think about the total cost of the investment in their child's education. Is an 18-year-old going to think about it? No, an 18-year-old's not going to think about it. Most 18-year-olds aren't going to care. They're going to want to go to the school in which they want to go. They're going to, for any reasons, whether it's their friends or a specific program, they're going to apply. It's going to be mom and dad who sit down and say, listen, there may be some realities that we have to talk about, and you may not fully be able to wrap your head around it at 18, but... You can only do so much. Every family, every family, no matter who you are, has a budget constraint. Mm-hmm. And you may have to sit down with your child and say, listen, there's just certain realities. But if you're asking me to use my daughter as a judge, her and her friends, have her or her friends sat down with their parents and said, listen, I understand there's harsh economic realities and we should discuss them. No, you're dreaming in technicolor. Oh, it's just so hopeful. I mean, you know, we're counting on the youth of today to take care of us. So they should they should be conscious of gas prices and apartment rentals and uh, and what a couch costs when they move out. You know what? As you know, I believe that children are our future. But um, I think that kids are doing as well a time as they can. You don't have to ask any of these children to know that they are now they have a new title it used to be Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Gen Moldy Oldie. This is Gen COVID. And they are just digging themselves out of COVID and for spending two years living in a box. So what they want to do is they want to get out and they want to live again and they want to go to school again. And they're having, you know, they're having fantasies about where they go to school money. I think that's mom and dad's Mm. responsibility. Eric Hampson, economics professor at uh, X University. Take his class. Sign up for it in the fall. That's, That's not the time to do that, isn't it? Soon. Uh, you can take my class anytime you want, as long as you pay the tuition. Man. And by the way, I loved Eddie Grant because he rocked on to Electric Avenue. And stay healthy, Greg. You got it. Hey, thanks for checking out Toronto Today. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow, 5.30 to 9 o'clock. You can hear it on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com.